Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Burial of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 27, 54 to 61, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. might seem strange to dedicate an entire study to the burial of Jesus. I mean, what can be gained by doing that? I mean, after all, the death of Jesus, then the resurrection of Jesus, those are the focal points. The burial, one would think, should serve no more as a transition between those two grand events. But there's a reason to linger at Christ's burial. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Apparently, the matters of first importance don't just include the crucifixion and the resurrection, they also include the burial. See, one of the reasons for an emphasis on burial is that as we'll see in our study in Matthew, the burial of Jesus tells us that even after his death, Jesus was still loved and honored and worshiped. And that might seem strange. We know that Luke tells us of the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem and they were going to Emmaus when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them, but they're not aware that it is Jesus and Jesus engages them in dialogue. So I'm reading here Luke 24, 19 to 21. And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I mean, notice their words. We had hoped. That was in the past. Hope was now dead. Indeed, when we tell the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we often tell it through the eyes of the disciples, and rightly so. I mean, they were the ones chosen by Jesus to establish the church and to spread his gospel to the whole world. And so from their perspective, we tell the story of the death of Jesus and also the period of time between the death and resurrection when their hopes were crushed and they're left with disillusionment. And so we tend to think of Jesus' days in the tomb as the days of despair and hopeless anguish. Now, again, we're right to think of the days of the tomb in that fashion. I mean, after all, you know, if you've ever stood before a coffin of a loved one or attended a graveside service, you know how weeping is a part of that. And yet the death of Jesus, as well as his subsequent burial, show us that there was a lot more going on than grief and loss. Let's look at the death and burial of Jesus from the perspective of three different people, none of them being the disciples. The first is the perspective of a Roman centurion who is standing there. Now, centurion, that's a word that comes from the word century. A century is hundred. And so centurions were commanders of a military unit of a hundred legionnaires or soldiers. And sometimes the actual size of the command changed, but that's not the point. When the Roman army went into battle, it was the centurions who were considered the backbone of the military. They enforced discipline on the ground. Their leadership and their ability to make good military decisions ensured that their men would perform well. That was a part of the Roman genius. I guess what I'm saying is that centurions were highly respected military leaders. Now, from a biblical perspective, I find it fascinating that whenever the Bible speaks of them, It speaks of them in respectful terms. 
So, for instance, Matthew chapter 8. It happened in Capernaum, Jesus' base of operations in Galilee. A centurion came to him, telling him that his servant was paralyzed. And Jesus told him that he would come instantly and heal the man. And the centurion responded that he was unworthy to have Jesus step foot inside his house. Indeed, he told Jesus he knew all about military command because he commanded troops and they obeyed. If Jesus commanded his troops, he knew the servant would be instantly healed. That was an incredible moment. I mean, how much did that centurion know about Jesus? How did he understand the kind of authority that Jesus actually had? Even the disciples hadn't grasped that. And in response, Jesus had said to him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And with that, Jesus went on to say that many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he meant that many Gentiles, and he included this Roman centurion as one of them, would be among the guests at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But there's more to that story of that centurion, and and Luke fills in some of the details. And here I'm reading Luke 7, 3 to 5. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now think about that. Now move forward to the book of Acts. You know, the good news of Jesus is about to break into the Gentile world. That's Acts 10. And where does the event happen? It happens in the home of a man named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion who has come to love the God of Israel. And I make all these points so that we understand that a great many centurions are treated in the Bible as honorable men. And with all of that in mind, let's now go to the death and burial of Jesus and let Matthew tell us what happened to one centurion when Jesus died. Remember, just before we read our passage, that Matthew has told us that Jesus has cried out with a loud voice and he's given up his spirit. Jesus is now hanging on the cross and he is dead. So let's pick up Matthew 27:54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now, Matthew mentions more than just the centurion. No doubt, the centurion is the commander of the others. He was acting under orders. He was given the command to make sure that Jesus died on the cross and that there be no trouble. But when Jesus died, the centurion witnessed unexpected events. There's an earthquake. Indeed, before the death of Jesus, three hours, the sun had disappeared. And no doubt, the centurion had also seen Jesus being taunted while he was still alive. And he must have heard all seven sayings of Jesus that were uttered on the cross. He might well have seen Jesus offering eternal life to the one criminal who was hung beside him. Centurions were familiar with death, and no one had ever died like this man. And so he leads the way for his troops. Truly, this was the Son of God. So let's examine that statement. There are some scholars who insist that what this man uttered must have been something like, you know, this man was a son of the gods. That is, he sees something divine in Jesus, and he interprets it through the grid of his pagan religion, that is, through his understanding of the Greek and Roman gods in the Greek and Roman pantheon. I mean, perhaps, say these scholars, he he simply concluded that this must be one of the gods come to earth. Now, I reject that interpretation, and and here's why. See, first of all, 
the natural way to translate what Matthew wrote to us is that the centurion did not say this was a son of the gods, but rather, this is the son of God. Well, and as we've also seen, some centurions in Israel had familiarized themselves quite well with the Jewish faith. They knew exactly what the Jews taught and what they believed. Some had even come to worship the God of Israel. That's why the centurion I've already mentioned had given his own money to build a local synagogue. See, some even gave generously to building of synagogues and furthering the Jewish faith. So it seems to me, and I know this is saying a lot, but it does seem to me that this man had become a believer in Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. He must not have been of the hardened soldiers who delighted in killing and crucifying victims. Instead, he had keenly observed Jesus on the cross, and now that Jesus had died, he came to a conclusion. He had just witnessed the death of the Son of God. So why should we be surprised by that? I mean, one of the criminals who was hung on the cross, a man who began by mocking Jesus, had also repented, and he asked Jesus to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. And now this centurion, no doubt, giving leadership to the men who crucified Jesus, this centurion, who would have known something of Judaism, repents and comes to believe. You know, there's an ancient tradition that states that this man, in fact, became a Christian. And we can't verify that tradition, but it does strike me as very plausible. And so here we are. Jesus has just died. And even before he's raised from the dead, his lifeless body hangs on the cross Jesus is drawing men to himself. I'm reminded of this in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, there's something so powerful about the death of Jesus that his death and his cross, his sufferings, and the way in which he gave up his spirit attracted followers. As his dead body hangs on the cross, one man has come to believe. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. second group of people who witnessed the death of Jesus are the women. So I'm reading here Matthew 27, 55 and 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Matthew mentions many women. Now we know that among the disciples, John did remain close to the end. And we assume that he was not a target either for the chief priests or the Romans simply because of his young age. 
And the women also would not appear to have been a target because from the perspective of the enemies of Jesus, these women didn't constitute a threat. But the other disciples believed they were in danger and they had fled. Matthew says that the women were looking on from a distance, and I suppose he has in mind that they were at a safe distance. No doubt they were afraid as well. Now, those who pay close attention might wonder if what Matthew tells us is at odds with what John describes. So that's because John 19.25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, I don't think this is a contradiction. It might have been that initially they were near, and then they were driven from their spot by the soldiers to a place that was further back. But even though they were now at a distance, they continued to watch. You might drive them away, but they weren't going to leave. And Matthew doesn't mention all their names. You know, for instance, Matthew doesn't mention, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know she remained there watching her son suffer and die. That's, that's hard to fathom. Now, Luke gives us a great deal of background about some of these women. Luke 8, 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also, listen to this, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means." Now, the women Luke mentions are very interesting. Mary Magdalene, who Matthew mentions at the cross, was once a demon-possessed woman. But Luke, when he mentions the female followers of Jesus, mentions another woman, Joanna. She's the wife of a man who serves as chief executive in Herod's household. So we'd have to assume that this was a woman of means. And she used her wealth to supply funds for Jesus' ongoing ministry. Indeed, a great many women were what we today might call patrons, financial supporters, whose money was used to make Jesus' ministry a possibility. And in our passage, the one we're studying, in which Matthew says these women stood at a distance, that Matthew mentions they had followed Jesus, and then he also mentions that they had ministered to him. So how so? Well, we have to believe that the constant support of these women was a great encouragement to Jesus. He'd come to appreciate their faithfulness as his followers. And even though he would entrust his leadership to the eleven, Jesus was always cognizant of the ministry of these faithful women. And one has to wonder what these women thought when Jesus died. You know, I've mentioned Mary Magdalene in a sense. She's a model of what the other women thought. Notice as we go through the text that when Jesus was buried, Mary Magdalene and then another Mary, probably Mary the mother of James and Joseph, That is to say, these women didn't just wander away after Jesus died. No, no, they were not like the Emmaus disciples who said, you know, we had hoped that he would deliver Israel. But I guess we were wrong. No, no, these women stayed. And two Marys followed all the way to the tomb. And it should also be remembered that these women had again come to the tomb on Sunday morning. That's because the burial of Jesus had been done in haste. And then proper spices for masking the odor of death had to be properly applied. So they came to do duty to the body of Jesus. Listen, a picture is emerging. Not only does the death of Jesus inspire a centurion to declare him to be the son of God, but his body inspires the women who have supported him throughout his ministry to stay with the body and to honor his body in death. So did the women think that the implications of the death of Jesus 
would cause them to lose hope as it had the disciples. Well, the gospel writers don't tell us what they thought, but it seems remarkable to see their loyalty to his body, their honoring of him in his death. Their love for him is undiminished in death. We don't hear their loss of faith. Indeed, as John tells the story, when Jesus rose, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and furthermore, he then appeared to the other women. And so we see the death of Jesus inspired faith in the centurion, and for the loyal women, it inspired them to double down on their love for him. Indeed, their commitment to him was undiminished in death. Now, they didn't work out the implications of his death. It's only that his death changed nothing in their determination to love him and not be separated from him. Now, now to the third person affected by the death of Jesus. Let's read Matthew 27, 57 to 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So let's remember that Jesus died at three in the afternoon. Now evening had fallen, and I assume that somewhere getting close to six, the sun would soon set. It was evening, and then amazingly, a man we would never have expected steps forward. He's rich. He owns a tomb. A tomb, Matthew tells us, is a new tomb, and other gospel writers tell us it's a tomb that no one has ever used. Now, if that language is unfamiliar, in those days, tombs would hold multiple bodies. At any rate, he goes to Pilate, asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate would have expected someone to do that. I mean, after all, the Jewish law, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, tells us that a dead body was not to remain on a tree overnight. And furthermore, since it was Friday, you know, towards evening, and Sabbath was upon them, and that Sabbath was a high Sabbath of Passover week. And for all those reasons, the body had to be dealt with. But the religious leaders were gone. They seemed unconcerned. And so Joseph of Arimathea, steps forward. This is fascinating, is that he's not only a rich man who's received permission to bury Jesus, it's who this man is. Now, Matthew only mentions his name as if his readers, who would have been mainly Jews, would have remembered him well. But the other gospel writers tell us that he had been, or was, even then, a member of the Sanhedrin. And that's shocking. I mean, how would a member of the Sanhedrin, you know, the body that had condemned Jesus, step forward? and treat the body of Jesus with such respect so that he wraps him carefully in a new cloth, adds some basic spices, and takes it to his new tomb. And Luke explains exactly what was going on. Luke 23, 50 to 51. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Yeah, when the hands went up to crucify Jesus in the Sanhedrin, Joseph's hands stayed down. He would not agree. Unlike the others, Joseph was a good man. He was anxiously awaiting the consummation of all things, the kingdom. Now, John tells us in John 19, 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So think about that. Joseph was a secret follower of Jesus who remained secret 
because he was frightened by the other members of the Sanhedrin, and so he kept his loyalty to Jesus a secret. And then, as Jesus' dead body hung on the cross, I mean, of all the times in the world, to step out of the shadow and declare himself as a follower of Jesus. Listen, he does it now. When the disciples think that all hope is gone, not for Joseph, this is his moment to become a public follower of Jesus, and he declares it in his willingness to bury the body. What a moment this was. When Jesus died, before he had been raised, one man, a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph, decided to publicly declare himself loyal to Jesus. His days of being a secret follower were over now, and it happened when Jesus' lifeless body hung on the cross. That's fascinating. But he wasn't alone. John tells us he was joined by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier come to Jesus by night. Yeah, the burial of Jesus was the declaration of some, some that were fearful, some secret followers of Jesus, that they would be secret no more. The lifeless body of Jesus, handled and buried, drawing the most unlikely people to himself in his death. A centurion, the women, two members of the Sanhedrin. Yeah, let's keep proclaiming the burial of Jesus so that even in that, a profound mystery He was drawing people to himself. Thanks for your message, John. You know, how should we respond to those, though, who say that there is no sound evidence for the resurrection? It's just a myth made up by a few desperate men and women. Well, I mean, I know that gets uh, traded around once in a while, and, uh, you know, I've heard many people say something very similar to that. Uh, The problem that they're always going to deal with is just what Matthew tells us. First of all, that a Roman guard had been placed in front of the tomb. Secondly, that the Roman guard was not charged in any way, as I've already said, and that the body was gone. And so uh, then, you know, I added to that this whole idea that, you know, none of the disciples, I mean, every single one of them went to a martyr's death. Not one of them broke rank, but rather every one of them, right unto death, continued to confess that they had seen the raised Jesus. They're not making up stories. On top of that, Paul even writes. He says, you know, that Jesus preached to 500 at a time. And he said, most of them are still alive. You could have interviewed them in his day. No, no, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-821-4965. 
663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.